everyone, and welcome to episode number 32 of the Learning to Lead podcast. Uh, this month, uh, I got to sit down with Salim Gabriel, who is the executive director of the Pittsburgh Promise, and uh, I'll let him explain what they do. It's a fantastic organization in Pittsburgh, and he's doing a great job with that. And uh, it was a great interview, so much insight, so much wisdom in this man, and it was an honor to sit down with him. And um, you can read his bio and ways to connect with him in the show notes. Um, I want to jump right into this, but before we do, um, Salim will actually talk about this at the end of the interview, Um, but I do want to tell you up front that the Pittsburgh Promise is actually looking for volunteers, um, and specifically in the area of mentoring middle school students and in inner city schools. The time commitment would be 45 minutes a week um, during the school day, and uh, they're looking to get 2,000 mentors. And um, this is a great opportunity if you have a heart for young people. Um, I would really encourage you to consider it. Uh, go to the Pittsburgh Promise website and uh, read a little bit about what they do. And if after hearing Salim and this interview and uh, checking out their website you'd be interested, you can go to BeAMiddleSchoolMentor.com and uh, sign up right there to volunteer. Again, that's be a middle school mentor.com and I'll put that link to that in the show notes as well. So I encourage you to get involved somehow in your city and if this is an opportunity for you to get involved uh, I, uh, that you would want to get involved with jump right in. So enjoy the interview and I'll see you next month. Salim, thank you so much for being able to do this today. I appreciate you taking time to invest in me and other young leaders. So uh, why don't we start off with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Well, I am honored that you would have me do this. Thanks very much. Humbled by that. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Salim Gabriel. I'm the director of the Pittsburgh Promise, and that's what I do vocationally. And at the Promise, our mission is really about trying to transform the quality of public education in the city of Pittsburgh, the quality of life of um, our urban neighborhoods, and then thirdly, the quality and diversity of our region's workforce. And we do all three by making sure that every single kid who lives in the city of Pittsburgh and graduates from any one of our urban schools, that we uh, send them to college on a scholarship of up to $40,000. So that's kind of like the mission of the promise. We're known for the scholarships and known for a pretty substantial fundraising campaign. Uh, but the uh, $250 million fundraising campaign and the scholarships, though they're very significant, um, they're not really why we are in business. We're not in business to do a fundraising campaign or to send kids to college. We're in business to transform our public schools, our neighborhoods, and our workforce. That's great. I love that. So talk to us a little bit about your journey into leadership. How did you get to where you are today? Um, just walk us through that. Were you, all, were you a born leader? You just came out of the womb leading things, or is that something you've learned over time? Um, you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I, that's a tough question to answer because it assumes that I think of myself as a leader. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm an activist, so I tend to, uh, uh, my orientation is to uh, jump into the pool and figure out how to swim. Um, I tend to be very motivated by issues of uh, justice and uh, equity, and um, uh, so the causes like poverty and race and uh, um, uh, educational opportunities, and, uh, you know, tend to just kind of float my boat, and those to me are very central to my my uh, Christian worldview and my view of of the kingdom of God uh, here on earth. So, to me, I you know, I've, I never set out to be a leader or to lead. I I hope I set out to serve, and in the process of serving, um, sometimes you get called upon to serve some more, and then to serve a little bit more, and then to uh, lead others in serving. Um, 
so that that to me is kind of how it emerged. Like you know, yeah, it wasn't like, gosh, one day I hope I become a leader. Yeah. So how how do I position myself, and how do I make sure I make strategic choices to get me there? Uh, that actually kind of like uh, grates at me. Right. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you mentioned your walk with God being influential. Can you talk about how your your faith uh, affects your leadership? Well, sure. Um, I mean, all of us see the world through some lenses, and we can't help but see the world through those lenses. You know, none of us are capable of, like, pure objectivity. I don't think it exists. Um, The lenses through which I see the world are my Christian faith. And, um, And then kind of a particular... Uh, particular shade of the Christian faith and I kind of hold the view that there are like lots of different shades of Christianity it's not, I, I don't think it's black and white, I do think it's like a wide array of greys um, and the shade through which I see the world um, begins with the with the joy of announcing that Jesus is Lord and that to me is like the foundational foundational building block on which lots of great things can be built um, and on that foundation of building block, according to Jesus, uh, God wants to establish his kingdom on earth. And he told us to pray, you know, your kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So, um, so my lens through which I see the world, my faith lens through which I see the world is all about, I hope it's all about um, seeking to be a part of and establishing God's kingdom here on earth. So it's not so much about... I hope I can get to heaven one day, or I want to get as many people into heaven as possible. I love the idea of getting to heaven one day, um, but I'm a lot less motivated by that and a lot more motivated by um, God wanting to establish his kingdom and calls Christ's followers to be agents of that kingdom here on earth now. That's great. I just had a curiosity. So you're in a very public organization right and so you have to deal with the city and all these things do you ever does that ever impact your faith or how you communicate to people or has that been difficult for you to live out your faith in that world um no no it hasn't at all been difficult to live out my faith in that world um and and i think actually it's it's been you know prior to my job here at the Pittsburgh promise i worked for an overtly Christian organization for 23 years. And before that, I was a youth pastor at a church for a bunch of years, a couple of different churches. So I'd kind of been in overtly Christian organizations for a long time. Um, this one, the Pittsburgh Promise, is not a Christian organization, not not by definition, not by design, but but I am absolutely convinced that the work of the Promise is... is uh, is central to the work of the kingdom of God. So this is kingdom work, regardless of whether anybody puts that label on it besides me. Um, so, and I think it's really actually not only good for, but maybe important for Christians to learn how to live a kingdom life and uh, promote kingdom agendas without having to use our insider language, without having to use the jargon that you know without having to use a christian dictionary a lot of times we speak i think a language that is foreign to the majority of our listeners um and unless somebody is familiar with the christian dictionary they wouldn't be familiar with what we're saying so we end up sounding like we're speaking a foreign language um so learning how to speak about kingdom values kingdom priorities kingdom agendas and push them and promote them but using everybody's language and using language that ends up um, 
building coalition rather than building walls um, is something that I work pretty hard at and think often about. Mm. That's really good. Tell, tell us about maybe one or two people who have made a tremendous impact on your life and influenced the way you live. Um, and I'm assuming you're, uh, that you're assuming that Christ is t- on top of that list so we can go on to... Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm also assuming that most people, can, you know, most people will say, not all can say, but most people say mom and dad and, and you know, whatever. So I'm, I'm not going to go down that path, although I am going to include my wife at the top awesome. of that list. Um, she, you know, her fingerprints are all over uh, my life. And, and if there's any... If there's any culture or sophistication to the person that I am, it's because of her. Um, but now, in addition to, again, the, what you might expect, I am very, very, very blessed to have had um, four, four individuals. They happen to be men. Four individuals who've played a really key role in shaping me, shaping my character, shaping my vision, or shaping the way I do the work that I do. One of them is the guy who mentored me when I was in college. And um, it was because of him that um, I took very seriously kind of this call to following Christ. Um, The next person is a, a professor that I had in college who was more of a mentor and somebody under whom I apprenticed than a traditional professor, although he is a professor or was a professor. Uh, but my relationship with him was more of an apprenticeship and mentorship than teacher-student. There was some teacher-student. Um, and he continues to play a mentoring role in my life. He's in his late 70s. Uh, he's a fairly high-profile person. His name is Tony Campolo. And Dr. Campolo um, is the one who took kind of my general, broad, I want to follow Christ and serve kids, to he narrowed it, narrowed the focus onto how about kids who lack opportunities and lack resources, and who are facing giants and obstacles and lots of disadvantages. Um, so, kind of the social justice dimension of my faith was shaped by Dr. Campolo. The third person is also a relatively high-profile person. My relationship is less personal with him, although we know each other, and and I delight in the fact that he remembers me when I see him. I never expect him to do that. Mm -hmm. A giant in so many ways. His name is Dr. John Perkins, uh, community development leader on the forefront of the racial reconciliation movement, an older gentleman from Jackson, Mississippi. And Dr. Perkins is the one who kind of took this uh, so you'll see, by the way, a narrowing of kind of concentric circles from I want to follow Christ and serve kids to I want to serve kids who are disadvantaged and face all sorts of obstacles and lack resources. Dr. Perkins kind of narrowed that even further by def- by helping me define a strategy for how to do that. He talks about the three R's of Christian community development, and the three R's are relocation slash remaining, uh, reconciliation, and redistribution. The first one, the relocation slash remaining, is just essentially about making a choice about where to live and being intentional about that, that you don't commute to the place you do. You want to do community development. You've got to be a part of it. So if you live there, you remain. If you don't live there, you relocate. Um, the second R is the, the uh, reconciliation. It's not enough just to live in an urban environment if you want to be a part of urban community development. It's kind of fashionable right now to live in urban settings for lots of good reasons that don't necessarily result in development. 
But in order, if you want the relocation to result in development, you've got to build reconciled relationships that cross all sorts of chasms, whether they are race or income or politics or sexual orientation or gender or age or whatever, to kind of be somebody who's absolutely committed to crossing bridges, um, something that we do often in Pittsburgh um, physically, but I'm not sure we do it as well relationally. Uh, and the third R, the redistribution R, it's less about like, you know, you need a 20, I have a 20, so I reach in my pocket, I give you a 20, although sometimes it's that, but it's much more about mentoring and uh, passing on the, uh, the networks, introducing you to the people I know, sharing with you not just whom I know, but what I know, and having you share with me whom you know and what you know. And eventually, really, it's about ownership. You know, you've, you've heard the old adage, give a man a fish, he eats for a, for a day, teach him how to fish, he eats for a lifetime. The redistribution is more than teaching the man how to fish. It's really helping him own the pond so that he's not fishing always and he learns how to fish but has to fish in somebody else's pond. Um, but getting to the place where there's... So it's about a transfer of leadership and a transfer of ownership and sharing of power. So Dr. Perkins was very influential in kind of shaping that strategy, that philosophical underpinning for the work that I've done for the last 30 years of my life. And then uh, finally... I am blessed, I guess, with high-profile people. This fourth person is also a high-profile person who is in Pittsburgh, um, who is dead, and that is um, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. I've had the great joy of knowing him and calling him a friend and being the one who uh, gave the sermon at his funeral. Um, and, you know, uh, I hope one day I can be half as kind and half as gentle and half as embracing, half as thoughtful, <laughs> as Mr. Rogers was. And remarkably, the Mr. Rogers whom people see on television is not a character that he plays. That is just who he is. Um, so, yeah, those are some key influences in my life. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, talk a little bit about how what you do to personally grow and develop as a leader. Um, maybe, it's, you know, you talked about some mentoring relationships, books you read. Um, what do you do continually grow and make sure you're ahead? <sighs> Um, I don't know what it means to be ahead as a leader or grow as a leader. I guess you grow as a leader. If you, if you adopt the kind of leadership that I'm talking about, which is driven by, by serving, um, so then I guess the, you, the way you grow is by serving more uh, and serving uh, often and serving um, in places where you're expected or not expected. So... A, a book that has been very significant to me, you know, in addition to the Bible, this book is the one that I find myself reading and rereading and rereading often. And it's a really little book. Um, and it wasn't written as a book. It was written as three talks. And then it became a book. It's by, um, also, uh, this person died in, well, a bunch of years ago. Henry Nowen is his name. Um, and Henry was a Catholic priest who, in addition to being um, a priest, was an academic, and he taught at really high-profile places like Princeton and Yale. Um, but in his in the last 15, maybe maybe more years of his life, he lived in an intentional community with severely mentally and physically disabled persons who couldn't read his books and weren't impressed by his lectures and. Um, uh, don't know what the word resume means, um, but who just simply wanted to know, will you be here tomorrow? 
um, and this whole about like, will you just will you just be here? Will you you know kind of count on you to help me put my shoes on? Kind of count on you to uh, wipe my mouth after I eat that bowl of soup? Um, and that's that, those are the things that mattered. And he embraced that lifestyle for the last 15 years of his life. Um, though he was on the faculties of, like I said, of Princeton and Yale, resigned that, quit that life, and gave his life to the service of severely handicapped people. Um, well, this little book, which was a series of talks that he gave at a conference for for Christian leaders, pastors, and priests, um, <clears throat> and it's a book about leadership, and in an odd sort of way, he uses the three temptations that Christ faced that we read about in Matthew and Luke. He uses those temptations um, to kind of establish a th- the princip- some principles for leadership. And the name of the book is In the Name of Jesus, which I recommend highly for anyone who aspires to lead as Christ led. That's good. Um, talk to us about failure. What have you learned about failure over the course of your career? career? Well, that I have mastered. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um, so, uh, to me, it's it's not a surprise when I fail. To me, it's a surprise when I don't fail. Um, so when you know when I talk to others who just kind of seem entirely shocked by the fact that they have blown it, and um, you know, uh, I'm I'm often shocked on the days when I don't feel like I have blown it. Um, so failure uh, is to be expected. I am going to fail. So it's not, and by, by saying that I am going to fail doesn't make me a failure. So there's a difference between failing and being a failure. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think it's just really critical to often look in the mirror and, um, uh, you know, when things are not going well and things aren't um, moving according to plan to look in the mirror and to say, what should I have done differently? I think failure keeps one real and keeps one humble and uh, and also keeps one gracious. Um, I'm not sure how much more you want me to kind of keep. No, I think that's great. Um I'm sure you're a busy guy. How do you how do you balance work with family life or ministry and family and prioritize that? Yeah, um, I am a busy guy. In addition to a fairly big job here at the Pittsburgh Promise, I also pastor a little church on the north side of the city, and I do that as a volunteer. It's a church that, by design, doesn't have any uh, doesn't have a paid pastor and doesn't own any buildings. It's a Presbyterian church. But it doesn't feel like it or look like it. It surprises most people when they come and say, really, this is Presbyterian? Um, and it's a church that's attempting to do two things. In addition to the main business of every church, which is to make disciples, this church is attempting to model racial healing and care for poor people. So to model racial healing, we, um, we, we are really intentional about making sure that at every level of leadership, it doesn't matter what it is, that uh, there's as broad of... Um, as broad of a representation of God's family as possible. So there are two of us who co-pastor, I alongside with a Cameroonian colleague. Um, there are, you know, the elders are, again, as broadly representative as we can possibly be of God's family on the north side of the city. Um, the deacons, the people who do music, the people who make coffee, the people who babysit kids, the people who... Uh, um, 
set out breakfast. So we, we're really intentional about that. But in order to, dem- to be a church that cares for poor people, we have to ask ourselves, um, how do you do church without money? Because even if we have like 2,000 people coming to church who are poor, you're never going to have money. So how do you do church without money? Most churches' bud- budgets are spent on payroll and buildings. So if you don't have payroll and don't have buildings, you can... Uh, you can do church without money. <laughs> and we think that that is going to be the paradigm of the future. It's, it was really the first paradigm of the church. I think the way we have grown accustomed to church in this uh, in the last few hundred years is not how church is going to be in the next few hundred years. Uh, so I, I pastor a little church, and so I, you know, and, and that takes a few hours a week of my life with, with great delight and great joy, and I serve on a couple of boards. Um, now, I happen to be at a stage of life that's um, maybe enviable for some, and that is my wife and I got married early. We had kids early. Our kids grew up early, and they're grown and married and employed and living their lives, and, uh, and we are still, I mean, I wouldn't call us young, but we're not ancient, yeah. uh, and we still have a bunch of years. So we have, like, I don't have children that, are, that need me to go home to at the end of the day, and my wife also has a big job. And, um, but we are really intentional about dating a couple of times a week. Um, we, of course, see each other and we talk every day. But we make sure that we we um, are looking each other face-to-face in an uninterrupted, undistracted fashion at least twice weekly. And I don't book anything for Sunday afternoons and evenings, hardly ever. There are, there are occasions where that's just not avoidable. But, but if you ask me to do anything on Sunday afternoon and evening, I'm going to say no. I love that. That's great. I wanted to, to go into fundraising a little bit because I do think it's interesting with fundraising. And when I saw you had to raise $250 million, I was like, whoa. Uh, talk about what have you learned about fundraising? I know you started your own nonprofit. Now you're, you are responsible for raising that amount of money. What have you learned about fundraising over the years? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I've, narrowed, I've narrowed my fundraising knowledge to a couple of words or phrases. Well, one word that describes my... Uh, um, my f- strategy for fundraising is the word GAS, G-A-S, and that's an acronym, that fundraising requires grit, art, and science. Grit is just that. You, it's not easy, and it requires lots of hard work, and just like any, um, any discipline, you don't get good at it quickly. You don't get results from it quickly, whether it's uh, building muscles or trying to lose weight or developing stamina for running. You know, that takes time and it takes hard work and it takes persistence and consistence and showing up and doing it again and failing and struggling, but getting up and trying harder. So the, so there's just grit to fundraising. There's art to fundraising, and that's the art of telling the story, the art of cultivating relationships that are caring, that are more than just utilitarian relationships that get me the results that I want. And then finally, there's a science to fundraising. There's research and there's analysis and there's data um, that has to be studied and there are numbers that have to be crunched. Um, There are profiles that have to be done on prospects before you go knock on their door and you've got to get to know them and do the research. So so grit, art, and science, the gas of fundraising, that's kind of... um, how I have staffed our fundraising team here. Some, all of, all of us have to do the grit. Some have mastered the art and some have mastered the science. And I'm not the science of fundraising on our team. I'm the art of fundraising on our team. We have others who bring the science, the research, the analysis. Um, but then I think, I think successful fundraising can be also summarized by uh, two short phrases. 
please and thank you. <laughs> uh, and to me, the please part is, um, you know, begins with the assumption that nobody owes me anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I know some people who feel, who kind of have a, who are raising money but have a bit of a chip on their shoulder and they feel like, you know, like, I can't believe, man, you have all this money and we have all this need. I can't believe that you're not giving me some of the money to meet this need. Nobody owes me anything. And if I begin with the assumption that nobody owes me anything, um, then one, I am going to be much more relaxed and much more gracious in my communication with people. They're going to have a lot more fun being around me than they would if they felt like I felt they owed me. And then thirdly, I am going to be pleasantly surprised by anything that anybody gives because they don't owe me anything. Uh, so that's the please part. And then the thank you part is just about uh, making sure that not only are we saying the words thank you, but we uh, are reporting about the, the money that people give us. And by reporting, we're showing them that we took their gift so seriously that we wanted to demonstrate a return on their investment. Um, and that after we report, we thank them again. Oftentimes, fundraisers ask and people give, and then they ask again and then people give. And to me, I don't have the right to ask again until I have thanked you in writing, thanked you verbally, and thanked you by reporting back on the return. And that, to me, sets the stage for the next ask. That's excellent. Talk to young leaders for uh, a few minutes. What qualities do you look for in up-and-coming leaders that that you'd want to mentor one on your team? Yeah. this is going to sound a bit redundant because it's going to reflect the values that I stated already. I, um, I'm going to be, I'm going to look for, I look for people who, who are eager to serve, um, not eager to have, um, people who serve them. I am very energized by folks who embrace the, uh, motto. It's not about me. It's about us and it's about the cause. And, um, and I'm also, um, very attracted to folks who see their job description as whatever it takes, what needs to be done. Um, so I am, I am, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm turned off by folks who position themselves for advancement, who are kind of so the, what they do, they do in in order to get ahead, as opposed to what they do, they do because there's a need that needs to be met. And there's somebody who needs to be served. Um, so when somebody says, okay, what do I have to do to be on your board? I say, well, you've already lost that opportunity. <laughs> um, yeah. That's good. I'm going to say you, you answered this, but where, where do you see young leaders missing it most often? Um, in addition to what I said, I would add to that by being impatient. Um, and I don't know if that's a generational thing that's unique to this generation or that is just the nature of younger people. Um, so the, the whole kind of, you know, in my, in my early days in youth work, you know, the phrase that I and other youth workers used very often in uh, trying to, um, to engage kids in things that we thought were really important, we used the phrase, you know, you've got to earn the right to be heard, earn the right to be heard. And how do you earn the right to be heard? You keep showing up and you keep coming to, you keep being present in kids' lives. You attend rehearsals and 
plays and football games and uh, debate matches and and you are there after school and before school and lunch period and you just you know you and finally you earn the right to be able to say something of value to a kid that addresses them at their you know you at whatever place they are in life um, well that whole kind of earning the right to me comes by my being persistent and showing up and being reliable and being faithful and and not pounding the table and saying why are why am I not you know given more opportunities why am I not invited to lead more why am I I think that's just uh, the, the more it's demanded and the more it's pushed to me the uh, the the less that person is desirable. That person may be desirable to others, but for me, that person is less desirable. Um, but the person who is just willing to slug it out persistently, patiently, that person is somebody I am going to surprise by rewarding and advancing and creating more opportunities for. That's good. Um, I know that you've, you had, you pass a baton from one organization to another when you came to the Pittsburgh Promise. You left an organization that you helped start, or you did start. Um, what did you learn about succession? What have you learned about succession? I think a lot of seasoned leaders now are thinking more and more about succession, handing off to the next generation. What have you learned in that for yourself? That I didn't do it well. Um, that's not because the people who came after me um, didn't do a good job, but I did not set the organization up well for... Um, my departure. And you know, most most of us who are entrepreneurial enough to start things and and are blessed enough to see those things grow and succeed to some, some degree, um, whether we mean to or not, end up creating cultures that are personality-centered. Um, I don't know that I intended that. It was just that by default um, and you know you can get away for a little while on kind of personality and on charisma um, but at some point there are certain certain cultural priorities that have got to become kind of institutionalized into the life of the organization they become the air that they breathe regardless of who is um, leading the ship and I don't think I did that well prior to leaving the Pittsburgh Project to come to the Pittsburgh Promise. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, the, having it, having the um, the central focus of the organization not be the person, but be a team, not be that person's gift, but the institution's culture, um, having the relationships that donors have not be um, exclusively with the senior most person, but shared with other key leaders. Um, those things help lessen the shock of somebody um, moving on. And sometimes I think, again, well-meaning, maybe even it was right, but sometimes those of us who start organizations that end up doing well, sometimes we stay a little too long where we end up further deepening the dependence on the personality. That's good. So out of everything you've accomplished up to this point in your life, what would you say that you're most proud of?
I don't feel like I've done a whole lot yet. Um, and I, I don't see that just to kind of sound like I'm speaking with humility. Um, you know, for my 23 years at the Pittsburgh Project and my now six years at the Pittsburgh Promise, um, there's been this kind of driving vision, and it's a vision for the future of the city of Pittsburgh. And the vision is plagiarized from the Hebrew scriptures from the book of Zechariah. It was Zechariah's vision for Jerusalem that many, several of us in Pittsburgh have embraced it as our vision for Pittsburgh. At the Pittsburgh Project, that was kind of the institution's vision, and it continues to be, for me, a personal vision. And it goes like this, that Pittsburgh, and this is, like I said, it's plagiarized from Zechariah, except for the one word. We took out the word Jerusalem, plopped in the word, the word Pittsburgh. That Pittsburgh would be known as a city of truth, where once again men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of the city, each with cane in hand, watching while little boys and girls play safely in the streets. Um, so if that's the driving vision in my life, you know, we're, we're nowhere near having reached it. Um, so until Pittsburgh becomes known as a city of truth and where the most vulnerable populations, namely the very old and the very young, are no longer vulnerable, um, I've done diddly squat. Again, you may have answered this question, but you know, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to be remembered for at the end of your life? Hmm. You're challenging me to think about some things that I haven't given much thought to, so that's, that's good. How do I want to be remembered? Uh, he tried to live by grace. Okay. And then if you could give any last advice to young leaders, what would it be? I would want them to remember first and foremost that they are deeply and profoundly loved. And that love is not based on how good they are, and it's not diminished by how bad they are. It doesn't grow by how much they perform, and it doesn't decrease if they don't perform as much or as well. But that you are deeply, profoundly, entirely, unconditionally unhesitatingly, totally loved. I'd want him to know that. I didn't know that. And therefore, I spent maybe the first 10, 12, maybe 15 years of my own faith journey, my own professional journey, my own marriage, trying to earn love or demonstrate that I'm worthy of love. Um, <clears throat> and, I and I nearly destroyed the people that I loved the most by not being firmly grounded in that. So I'd want the young leaders to know that. And not just kind of like theoretically, philosophically know it, but yeah. like experience it. Um, what helped you cross that line just out of curiosity? Because I feel like a lot of, myself included, a lot of young leaders, we have to prove ourselves. We feel like we have to do X, Y, Z. We may know in our head that we're loved and things, but in our hearts we're like, we got to do, we got to do, we got to do. So what was it that enabled you to cross that threshold? Sadly, it was uh, it was like being on the verge of disaster and the verge of losing my marriage and losing my kids. Thank God I did not. Um, 
and then I went to I went I sought the uh, counsel of a spiritual director, Catholic priest in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, and he was the one who kind of um, drove me to this place, uh, and he, and he used a portrait from from the Bible, um, but basically said, Salim, I don't uh, until you can see yourself. This is his language. Until you can see yourself resting your head against the breast of the master, listening to his heartbeat, don't leave your room. <laughs> uh, so he just kind of wanted me to get into the place where I can just kind of see myself as I am embraced by Christ with my head against his chest. Um, so that was, you know, at a moment of crisis, that was kind of a critical um renewing moment so I'd want young people to know that and experience that that their identity is you. Uh, they are the beloved ones you are the beloved one sons and daughters um, and I would want them to uh, want you to be daring and bold um, in loving others to be maybe even reckless in loving others um, so as we have been recklessly loved with abandonment to be that generous and passing that on and that I mean that shows itself in how we work and how we serve and how we lead and how we prioritize how we spend our time how we spend our money um, how we embrace life you know that, that we do it with joy and we do it with the, this constant wonder breathlessly looking for the next opportunity to love and to serve and so on um, yeah. that's great and then this will be the last question but we love what you're doing at the Pittsburgh Promise and how can myself and everyone else listening to this help serve what you're doing here um, thank you I appreciate that um, I would love for every single kid and any one of our um, middle schools right now, and I, this is very specific and very targeted, and we have an initiative that is attempting to do this, uh, we would like to place an adult mentor one-on-one -on -one who spends 45 minutes a week with a middle school kid in one of our schools during the school day inside the school building. So we, we're, we're hoping to, uh, to get about 2,000 folks who commit to doing that once a week, and we're at about 700 right now. So that's one thing you can do. And there's a website called Be a Middle School Mentor. Really creative, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, <laughs> so go to the Be a Middle School Mentor website, and if you're willing, sign up. And if you're, and if your job or your school day or family day allows you to pull away for 45 minutes, and, and you know we have middle schools in many neighbors around the city, so it's easy for some to be able to kind of you know run out, run out on their lunch break and just go a few blocks to the mm -hmm. school nearest them. And we'll try to make it as convenient as possible. That's great. How about that, how about that for practical, huh? I think that's fantastic. I hope we get you lots of mentors. Yeah. And again, thanks for your time. Thanks for what you're doing for the city and for the kingdom of God. We appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thank you're you. a good man. Peace.